Hello, family. You're tuned in to The Real Rx, a platform created by five uniquely talented physicians with one main mission to educate and empower our communities to do and feel better. Here is where we have real talk about trending health topics and your problems or issues in health and even the healthcare system. We'll take you behind the brains of an ophthalmologist, family doctor, ER doctor, OBGYN, and healthcare advocate to discuss the real things that ail you. Join us for another episode of The Real Rx. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are here to talk about a very interesting topic to pick up from our topic last week, diabetes part two. I'm specifically chatting about living with diabetes, some of the treatments associated with it, uh, but the lifestyle that can come along with it. And we'd really like you to join this discussion with us. Um, so I'm Dr. Felicia Sumner. I'm a board-certified family medicine and wellness strategist. I'm dedicated to breaking down the massive wall between doctors and patients so you can become well, whole, energized, and loving life. And you are tuned into The Real Rx. I'd like to have my other lovely colleagues introduce themselves before we get into the nitty-gritty. Let's start with Dr. Anika. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Anika, the vision diva, doctor of internal visual acuity. Your basic ophthalmologist helps you with your external vision, but I'm the curator of the eye exam, which lets you see more clearly the vision you have for your life, your brand, or your business. Thanks, Dr. Anika. Dr. Nicole? Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Nicole. I am a board-certified pediatrician, former caregiver, health advocate, and the CEO of Your GPS Doc. I help family caregivers do three things, relieve their overwhelm, buy back their time, and ensure that their loved ones have adequate and effective health care. Thanks so much, Dr. Kim. Hey everyone, my name is Dr. Kimberly. I'm an ER doctor and I help you to save healthy and more importantly, thrive outside of the doors of the ER. Awesome, and Dr. San. Hey, it's Dr. San. It is your board certified obstetrician gynecologist that helps women navigate their pregnancy, their labor, their delivery, and also postpartum safely. And I also help moms achieve balance and get to that sweet spot of mommy nirvana. Thanks so much, Dr. San. So as I said, today we're going to have um, a discussion part two of our diabetes podcast series regarding uh, living with diabetes. We chatted a bit last week about how to diagnose it, um, what some of the symptoms are uh, that some people might present with at their doctor's office or even in the doors of the ER. And we found that it would be interesting for you, our amazing listeners, to um, hear a bit more about what could happen when you're diagnosed with diabetes. Um, you know, what could be some of the potential treatments and what is it like to live with diabetes? We'd love um, for you to share, for those of you who follow us on our Facebook page, share with us on your comments, etc. cetera, um, you know, any experiences that you have, we'd love to hear from you. So when it comes to living with diabetes, uh, one of the big things when you finally get that diagnosis, the first big question is, oh my gosh, am I going to be on insulin? Um, I don't know how many of 
my other colleague doctors experience getting that question. I'm sure all of you have, you know, had to diagnose diabetes multiple times throughout your experience. I know as a family medicine physician, um, that comes frequently, and that's the first question I often get. Um, and I'd like to hear, actually, even from our ER physician, Dr. Kim, if you don't mind, uh, for those folks who might have, you know, that diagnosis for the first time, does it ever happen for the first time in the ER? And if so, or if not, uh, what tends to be the most difficult complications that some folks might deal with when they present into the emergency room? Yeah, so um, usually when I find out when um, people have diabetes or newly diagnose someone with diabetes, it's because they come in um, in what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a huge term. But to kind of break it down, your body is um, mainly using sugar as its main source of fuel. And, and when people come in and they have diabetic ketoacidosis, they're not able to do that. What their body does instead is break down fat for energy, and that produces what's called ketones in your body. Same thing if you are doing like the keto diet, you're trying to burn fat and go into ketosis, that means you're burning fat off. Um, but in this circumstance, um, it's not a good thing. Usually, um, people come in with abdominal pain, they come in vomiting, they come in confused and not acting right. Um, I think we talked about a little bit last week, like kids can, sometimes kids will come in like comatose or like Dr. Nicole said last week, just absolutely just wacky and we can't figure out why. And it's because they're in diabetic ketoacidosis. So in that time, um, I do have to use insulin because, and treat the patient because um, insulin helps the body reverse the, the, um, the management of fat until breaking down the sugar like it's supposed to. So that's the time that I will start people on insulin. It's usually insulin infusions or drips, putting your IV and then I have to go to the ICU. But if I just diagnose um, people in the ER with diabetes and they're not having that complication, I never start them on insulin. I usually start them on a pill um, and it kind of varies which pill that I start. And then I have them to follow up with a primary care doctor, like a Dr. Felicia, to kind of manage and titrate and go up and down or change medicines as needed. But um, to answer your first question, the main complication that I see from diabetes is diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks so much for sharing. I think that it's an important point for sure. Um, that at least from my experience as a family medicine doc, I'd love to hear, you know, from our OBGYN and pediatrician, what your experience is with that population. Um, but in general, the majority of people that I diagnosed with diabetes do not have to start on insulin right away. Um, we often use what's called an A1C, which is um, a measure of how high your sugar is in your red blood cells or your blood for the past three months or so. And a good A1C, I think we talked about this a little last week, is l less than 5.7, but we don't say you have diabetes until it's 6.5 or higher. And we don't start insulin for most people until your A1C is 10 or higher. Um, so that's a long way to go for most people to have to require 
insulin to be able to control their diabetes. So I think that point needs to be made that when you are diagnosed, the majority of people do not have to start on insulin right away. Um, what's been your experience, Dr. Nicole, um, in, the, in our pediatric population? Um, I know that we've talked about there's been such a strong epidemic now of children being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, which is supposed to be an adult onset issue, but now it's not. Um, what's been your experience with regards to that? Yeah, so like we um, talked a little bit about last week, you know, in general, um, children with diabetes were almost exclusively affected by type 1 diabetes, which is an actual, you know, absence of insulin or a very low production of insulin. And so certainly in the beginning of my practice, when I was a primary care pediatrician, I don't think I ever had a type 2 diabetic um, you know, in a young child and, and not even adolescents. Um, generally, all of my patients who had diabetes were um, type 1 diabetics, and so therefore they were all on insulin. But certainly, you know, later in my career as a pediatric hospitalist, I definitely had the occasion to admit children, uh, mainly adolescents, um, obese adolescents, who were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And, you know, while I'm, I'm not a primary care pediatrician and uh, so this is a little bit out of my uh, wheelhouse, but my recollection is that many of them were on metformin, um, which I think is a good drug for insulin resistance. I don't know, you know, now with some of the newer diabetes drugs, which I'm not sure, maybe we'll talk about those a little bit later. I'm not sure if they're putting some of the older kids on those medications, but I definitely started to see more adolescents with type 2, um, and they generally were not on insulin. They were on the oral uh, anti-hyperglycemic medications. Gotcha. Thank you for um, sharing that. Now, with regards to pregnant women, that is honestly a little bit out of my wheelhouse. So I have to save um, Dr. San for uh, answering this question. Do our pregnant women generally started on insulin right away when they're diagnosed with diabetes and pregnancy? So actually, the guidelines have changed. So um, back in the day, which, you know, was only like maybe a year ago, because I'm only 28. Um, <laughs> but when I first started in residency, the first thing that we would do would be oral. The um, guidelines were, you know, you could start them on something like glyburide. And then if they had, well, let me take that back. You always do diet controlled unless it was, you know, their um, hemoglobin A1, excuse me, their one hour glucose testing or the three hour was off the charts. But, you know, if it was kind of like normally um, elevated, then we will start them on diet control. If they fail diet control, then we will start them on oral uh, medications. And the number one, one that we would start them on would be glyburide. And then um, some physicians would do them, um, start them on metformin. Well, about a year or so ago, it's actually changed. The um, first line that we should start patients on is insulin. But if the patient is absolutely like, no, I'm not going to start on insulin, I don't want insulin, then we do um, recommend, excuse me, um, what you call it, metformin, and no longer is glyburide actually recommended in pregnancy. So those are the changes. So now, yes, the answer is we do start them on insulin first. But of course, you know, I told y'all in the last one, you know, do as I say, not as I do. I would be one of those patients that would be like, no, I'm not sticking myself. 
Mm-hmm. Just do that. And mm-hmm. that's what most of our patients, um, you know, say. They're like, can I please, you know, if I have to start a medication, can I please start something oral? And we do try them on metformin. And most of our patients do very well on metformin. But I can tell the ones that are going to fail the metformin. I'm just looking at them like, you know, I give them all of the risk. And the biggest risk is fetal death um, with them not having it controlled. Um, and then, you know, those patients I really that really need to be pushed. And I do get them on insulin. And some of my patients are so against um, getting injections, so we have to get them an insulin pump. Um, But yeah, to answer your question, the first line now is insulin. And if they are just absolutely, you know, against starting insulin, then we do offer them metformin. So those are our two medications now. Gotcha. Well, I don't want to harp, you know, forever and ever on insulin because I know that it's such a scary word for a lot of people. Uh, And to be quite honest, even myself as a doctor, if I were diagnosed with diabetes, I I would probably do everything in my power to avoid sticking myself. So I get it. Absolutely. I'm um I'm curious. I I'd love to hear you guys' opinions too. Um, what is it about insulin that scares people so much? I have my own personal <laughs> agendas behind it. Um, but I'd love to hear. You know, what do you think? I see, Doctor Anika, you you have a, a light bulb going off. Uh, it makes me think back to a, a colleague of mine that I worked with when I was on faculty at USC. Um, he was a glaucoma doc. And um, passed away unexpectedly. And we heard that he passed away from an insulin overdose. And mm-hmm. that just sticks with me. My dad was um, wow. a type 1 diabetic. So growing up, I always saw him self-giving, um, giving himself shots in the abdomen or in the, in the thigh. And so it wasn't, it wasn't scary to me because I grew up around it. Um, but I think once I knew more and I understood more, it it made me nervous for people to be on insulin because the margin of error is so small, giving yourself mm-hmm. too much um, or not enough or skipping doses like this, just not a lot of room for error. So I applaud parents who have these type one juvenile diabetics, these young kids who have to learn to be so disciplined and have so much structure in what they eat and in checking their blood sugars and giving themselves um, sliding scales of um, of insulin and things like that. Um, So that is my fear with it um, from the side of knowing. Yeah, that's, thank you for sharing that story. That's an incredible point to make for sure. I mean, it does take someone rather disciplined and uh, very observant to be able to inject themselves with that medication correctly. I think from from a pediatrician's perspective, you know, unfortunately, I think most of us develop a fear of shots, so to speak, as, as early in childhood. And it all stems from getting the vaccines and, you know, having that pain associated with getting the vaccines. I also have had more than one, more than 10, probably more than 20 parents threaten their children. You know, they'll come to the doctor's office and if they're misbehaving, the parent will say, you better, you better calm down. I'm going to make Dr. Rochester give you a shot. So I think that this gets ingrained. It, yeah, it, it gets ingrained in our minds, you know, and, and the reality is that, you know, shots are painful. And so I think many people kind of grow up with a fear of needles. 
And so when they find out that they have diabetes, you know, and they have to give themselves a needle multiple times a day, I think it's very, very scary for them. But I will say, you know, having had multiple family members with diabetes, um, none of whom, like, I don't think anybody loves needles, right? It's not like anybody mm-hmm. likes that. But I have never stuck myself with that needle. But, I, you know, my understanding and definitely from looking at it is very, very, very small. So, you know, I think that diabetics do get used to it. Um, and, you know, they get to the point where it really is just a part of life that doesn't really bother them much. So I just, I don't want anybody listening to this to get the misinterpretation that, you know, we're telling you that you don't need your insulin or you shouldn't take your insulin um, because it really can be life-saving. Um, but, you know, I totally agree with what Dr. Anika said. There, you really have to be very careful and be very diligent Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, there are definitely a large amount of people who uh, require insulin to be able to uh, get things back on track with regards to their diabetes. On, I guess, an opposite note, I have also seen a decent amount of folks who've tried to, I guess, attack diabetes in a different way um, with regards to maybe more natural or alternative approaches. Um, have you guys seen any kind of success stories? I mean, I know that my approach as a family doctor is a little different, so I'm, you know, proud to, I guess, have a couple of success stories under my belt, but my training's a little bit different, so it's not to be expected that people can just get the diagnosis of diabetes and tackle this on their own, um, but I know that every single one of us have been affected by diabetes, whether it's ourselves or our family members I think it's like one person's diagnosed with diabetes every 17 seconds here in the United States, which is an insane statistic, I think. Sheesh. Yeah. Um, But for me, myself, I was diagnosed with pre-diabetes, and it put me on a very different track. Uh, It was during residency, and I was not sleeping well, of course. Um, I ate horribly, not to completely blame the hospital food, but... That certainly probably was not helping. I ate a lot of uh, hash browns for breakfast and waffles and pancakes and bacon. Oh, my God, I love bacon. Um, But with all that being said, uh, that was kind of a wake-up call for me um, because I have a strong family history of uh, diabetes, and I decided to tackle it, you know, from a different perspective. My doctor had offered metformin, um, which is the first-line medication for diabetes, Uh, But I had my vitamin D level checked and found that that actually was playing a big role. And of course, changed my diet and sleep and stress habits. Um, What have you guys seen with regards to that? Do you think that that might be an effective route that some people can take? Or when are they at a point when it just is not enough? I um, work with a gentleman at the VA. He's a non-clinical person. And he had his weight had fluctuated. He would he loves to cook and he would go through some of the fad diets, lose weight and then gain weight, lose weight, gain weight. Um, at one point, he told me that he was feeling really poorly, and so he went to see his doctor and his blood sugar was over seven hundred. And they wanted to wow. start him. They wanted to start him on insulin, all these things, and he did start on something initially, but he vowed that he would not stay on it. 
And let me tell you, he did such an amazing job. He is back down to his ideal weight. He now teaches other people who are pre-diabetic or early diagnosed diabetic how to change their lifestyle and habits so that they have the potential of coming off medications too. It's crazy. I mean, he is just such a poster child for, for what you can do when you put your mind to it. That is powerful. I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, in all reality, most chronic illnesses are diet and lifestyle related illnesses. Um, Unfortunately, our healthcare system doesn't focus on us improving things that way. Um, But in most cases, if we really put our focus on helping patients with improving their diet, their lifestyle, we could reverse a lot of chronic illnesses. I mean, we just had a patient at our office whose A1C, which is that sugar number, dropped by half, literally from like 13.5 to 7.3 in three months um, just by making changes to their diet and their lifestyle. So it can happen, I think. It's a point to come across, too, that it's not always an end-all, be-all diagnosis, um, but you've got to probably put a lot behind it. So I'm just really curious with regards to complications. Um, There are a lot of folks living with diabetes on a daily basis, and many of which can thrive tremendously, which I'm so happy uh, to be able to see regularly, but there are a lot of people legitimately suffering um, from this disease, complications especially. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard of them, people who end up on dialysis, end up blind, end up, you know, um, getting toes or whole legs amputated. Um, Interestingly, this often happens just because sugar legitimately in your blood cells probably shouldn't be there. And if you have too much sugar, you know, coating your blood vessels or coating your nerves, it can literally block the function of those pipes in your body. Um, I'm sure Dr. Anika, especially as an ophthalmologist, you see it all the time probably with regards to blindness. Um, Does that happen? Is that reversible? What can be done? Great question. Um, Diabetic retinopathy is in the top four leading causes of preventable blindness. Mm. Um, And although it's preventable, it is irreversible once it happens. Mm. And so just by controlling your blood sugars, maintaining a hemoglobin A1C within normal limits, and most importantly, having your eyes examined once a year. You can many times live an entire lifetime with your vision. It's only the people who do not take care of their chronic illness, who do not um, adhere to having annual eye exams, who succumb to total loss of vision in one eye or God forbid, in both eyes sometimes. Um, The mechanism of action is leaky blood vessels. Um, So all the sugar creates incompetence or blood vessels that like to leak. Mm -hmm. That leaking creates bleeding behind the eye. That bleeding behind the eye creates scarring and contraction that then pulls the retina off of the eye. And that's the film in your camera. If you rip the film off the camera, it doesn't work anymore. You're not able to capture images. And it's the exact same way with the eye. Um, And so if you are diabetic, it is imperative that you have an eye exam annually. Many times 
it starts without any symptoms at all. You won't notice anything initially. We will only know that you have diabetes affecting your eyes by looking in the back of your eye. And we can only do that if you show up for an exam. So I cannot stress to you enough how important it is for you to adhere to having annual eye exams if you are diabetic. Thank you. Thank you. And that's not just like the regular, you know, look at the chart with the big E at the top kind of exam. Um, from my understanding, it's a dilated exam. It's much more thorough than that, that usually can only be conducted at your eye doctor's office. So, uh-huh, things have changed a little bit because telemedicine has given us the capacity to make access to at least screening examinations a lot easier for patients. So these days there are some primary care doctor's offices, some endocrinologist offices that have brought in equipment, invested in equipment so that their diabetic patients can get a screening examination at least annually. Screening examination means that we're looking for presence or absence of disease. That's mm -hmm. all. It does not mean that we're looking way out in the periphery. We're not looking for other things like glaucoma, like macular degeneration. Those things can also occur. But if we're doing a screening examination, we're just looking for the disease in question. And in this particular instance, diabetes. However, the only way to have a complete eye examination is to visit your eye doctor to have dilating drops put into your eyes and to have the back of the eye looked at. That is the only way to get a complete and full examination of your eyes. Um, there are new methods with telemedicine where you're able to get an examination and that information is sent to an eye doctor remotely to review. If that examination is done without dilating eye drops, there is pathology that could be missed. So mm -hmm. keep that in mind as telemedicine um, brings on new ways of having exams done. There are some people who will require an examination in person at the hands of their eye doctor with dilating drops and things like that to be sure that we're not missing pathology. And hey, just to clarify for our listeners, Dr. Anika, when you say eye doctor, do you know, some people think of their optometrist when they say eye doctor. So are you... Is this the kind of exam that you can get at, um, you know, I hate to throw names out there, but America's Best or one of these, you know, retail chains, or are you talking about an ophthalmologist, a medical doctor? That's a great question, Dr. Nicole. So ophthalmologists are medical doctors. We go to medical school for four years. We then do a four-year residency in caring for the eye, both medically and surgically. Optometrists go to optometry school. They do not go to medical school. And they spend four years learning how to refract the eye and also manage eye diseases as well. Um, there are some shops, some of the mainstream shops, like your Pearl Vision, your Walmart, those kind of things, Costco, Sam's, that do perform full eye exams. That means they check the pressure, they dilate the eyes. They look at the entire back of the eye. But not all optometry offices do that. All ophthalmology offices do that. And that is the key distinction. If you go to see an ophthalmologist, you are going to have a complete exam. If you go to see an optometrist, you may have a complete exam, but you may not. And so it is up to you as your own healthcare advocate 
to ask for a complete eye exam no matter where you are. If you're unsure if this is an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, be sure that you are asking for a complete eye exam. Tell them that you want to be checked for diseases that can affect the back of your eye and you want that to be done by being dilated. Got it. Can I just add one more thing, Dr. Felicia? Oh, of course. Um, it kind of piggybacks on something that Dr. Anika said last, well, was it last week? One, on one of our previous episodes, Dr. Anika shared the story about the news person who had lost her vision, you know, after a LASIK surgery. And despite being like married, having kids, seemingly happy, committed suicide. And I just wanted to circle back to that just to reiterate for our listeners, um, you know, as we talk about the complications of diabetes and why it's so important for you to control it if you are diagnosed, the importance of eyesight and just circling back to what Dr. Anika said, because I have a personal experience with um, depression related to eyesight, related to my dad. Um, and, um, you know, he's now deceased, but he was diagnosed with diabetes um, somewhere in his 40s. And honestly, he didn't really take, you know, optimal care of himself. And so those things that Dr. Anika was just describing happened to my dad. You know, he ended up having lots of bleeding. He would have to go and get these laser procedures because of bleeding in the blood vessels. He had a partial retinal detachment. And over the years, as he got to be in his 60s, his vision had deteriorated so much that he was no longer able to drive. And that was a huge thing. You know, I mean, you know, men in general like to, they don't like to depend on people, but just think about not being able to drive anymore and how dependent that makes you on other people. And we saw, I mean, almost like an immediate shift in my dad's um, mood and in his affect as a result of him losing that ability to drive and having to always ask someone to take him places and, you know, having to arrange like special transportation for his doctor's visits if, you know, family members weren't available. So I just wanted to um, just mention, you know, that that's just one of the many complications from poorly treated, poorly managed diabetes. And um, it really has a huge impact on your life and your lifestyle. Uh, yes, it, it certainly can. I think that, um, that's probably a motivating factor for a lot of people when diagnosed with diabetes is to consider those complications, uh, which would hopefully, you know, encourage one to get the treatment that they really need to avoid most of them. Um, I think that this has been a fruitful discussion. I know that there's so much more that we can probably share, um, but we're wrapping up our time I wanted to see if there was anyone, if you guys want, if you ladies wanted to share anything else with our audience before we wrap up. Growing up, I remember a lady who lived across the street from my grandmother, and I was probably seven or eight years old, but we would go over and visit with her, and she was in a wheelchair because she was a double amputee, and she was also blind, but she would sew, she cooked for herself she took care of herself. She was very, very independent. And I say that to say, as, as Dr. Nicole was just mentioning about her dad, her dad, about the, um, the news personality that I mentioned last week, she was the exception to the rule. And I remember being in awe of everything she could do and how her spirits were always so high. 
Um, and so I many times forgot about all the things she didn't have because of all the things she did um, for herself and she was able to do. <clears throat> but the reality of it is this lady was wheelchair bound and blind and it was all due to diabetes. I remember seeing her take her insulin injections and all those things. And I didn't put it all together at that young age. Um, but now I totally understand and I totally get it that the things that happened to her were preventable things. And I admire her attitude about it, but it's better just not to get that way in the first place. Mm. It's better to take care of yourself before those things happen. I know I just want to mention from the obstetrical side that I, you know, I totally get that, you know, pregnancy itself is hard enough. And when you introduce something like diabetes, that's just one more thing that you actually have to monitor and possibly have to take medication for. But this is one of those diseases where I really stress to the moms that, you know, you really have to put yourself aside um, because you have decided to, you know, proceed with this pregnancy. You want to do everything that you can possibly do to make sure that at the end of the pregnancy, you are okay and this baby is okay. And I've, you know, sat with moms and held their hands while they were crying and upset. And, you know, we've kind of laughed through it because doing your finger sticks four times a day gets daunting and giving yourself insulin several times a day gets daunting and, you know, not being able to pig out because when you're pregnant, you're supposed to eat all the red velvet cake. That is daunting. But the thing is you have to think about the fact that you are, you know, trying to one, keep yourself alive and most importantly, keep this baby alive. And, you know, I, I tell people I'm not the scary doctor. I don't tell things to scare you. I just tell you things so you can really understand what can happen. And I have more than enough time, more times than I would like to had women come in who were very non-compliant with their, you know, diabetic regimen, didn't want to take, you know, medications, didn't want to do finger sticks for whatever reason and had babies that were 36 weeks and above, we're talking full-term babies, deceased. Mm. And it was preventable. It was 100% preventable. And I think Gosh. that because women see people with diabetes all the time, and they're like, you, you know, people have diabetes all the time, and it's okay. But the environment that you are making for this baby when your diabetes are, is uncontrolled significantly increases the chances of stillbirth significantly, significantly decreases the chances of stillbirth. And a lot of these babies, you know, take on the next thing is not only are they deceased, but we have these huge babies, 11, 13 pound babies. I'm not making these numbers up, 11, 12, 13 pound babies. Um, and, you know, they're deceased. And of course, who wants to have a C-section? Who wants to have an even more traumatic delivery, you know, on the fact, you know, on top of the fact that your baby has passed. But if these babies don't deliver vaginally, we're now talking about doing surgery for delivery. And that's, you know, just added trauma onto the situation. So I tell women, I stress to women, please, please, please let me know what I can do to help you get through it. One, two, do not lie because you lying doesn't help me at all. If you know that you are going to cheat on your diet, you know that you had pizza, you know, let me know these things. Don't cheat on your numbers because putting down false numbers gives me, it makes me give you a false treatment. So if you know that you went to a baby shower and you wild out, 
or you know that in your culture you have bread and things like that, just let me know so I can adjust your medications appropriately. But that's just the biggest thing that I at least want to, you know, leave as far as the obstetrical side, that it is so important because nothing is worse than a mom coming in at 36 weeks, really at any time, but 36, 37, 39 weeks with the deceased baby. So I stress that to the moms. Make sure you get the screening. Make sure you follow up with the testing if you need it. And make sure that you do diet or lifestyle modifications or take your medications if you have to. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, those are all very, very good points uh, that I'm grateful you've been able to share with our listeners. Well, if there are no other comments, uh, if all hearts and minds are clear, uh, we'd like to thank you all again for taking a listen to our podcast episode today. We've chatted about living with diabetes, and uh, we definitely are requesting that if you find this information has been fruitful for you, helpful for you in any way, please share with your friends, your loved ones, have them subscribe as well. Our mission and our passion is to improve the health of not only our own loved ones and patients, but our community. And we believe that getting out more and more information so that you can be empowered uh, will help us get there. So thanks again so much to you all for listening. We'll join you guys again next week and you have a great day.